Hello, and welcome to The Great Game, an Australian mega game podcast. Uh, this is episode 11, and uh, for this episode, we'll be doing In Conversation on the National Security Decision Making Game. Um, this is a first of our series of live recordings from ONGCon. Um, this one, we were doing a live podcast with Merlin Mark from NSDM and uh, Cody, who's a new mega gamer who played in the Cuban Missile Crisis mega game with me. Um, it's an awesome kind of look at the NSDM style of game, which is really unique and historically um, focused and on the Cuban Missile Crisis. Before we get into the episode, um, a little bit of news from the mega game world. As always, it's nearly all online activity. Um, like Jack said, we had the OMG Con, which we'll be talking about a bit more as we go through the next few episodes. Um, we've also got um, Ur, the Nexus City, which is a, a bit of a hybrid game. It's online, it's mega in the sense of it's being <laughs> quite large scale, and it's um, a bit more of a focused role-playing game. Um, it's going to be running um, shortly in this year and running throughout the end of the year over many weeks. Um, that one's coming from John Keyworth, who we've spoken to in a previous episode, and both Jack and I are helping out um, run the show, so it should be interesting to see where it goes. Um, we've also got the Climate Crisis game coming up in October, which is being run by um, Darren at Crisis Games. It pretty much sounds, uh, it pretty much is what it sounds like, a um, bit of a political and strategic climate management game. Um, so it should be interesting to see how they manage to bring it online after having to cancel their real life event. Um, that's about it for news this week, so let's get on with the episode. Okay, cool. Well, we're we're live. We're recording. I think we should get going. Um, so, uh, welcome, welcome to the great game. Thank you all for joining us. Um, in this is the first of our three live recordings for the online Mega Game Con conference, um, run by well coordinated by the Mega Game Coalition. Um, so I'm here, Patrick, um, one of your hosts, and I'm also with um, co-host Jack, who who played in the game we're we're talking about today. And um, we are talking with Mark and Merle from the National Strategic Decision-Making Game, um, or group. <laughs> and we've also got um, Cody here, who played in the, the game we're talking about. Um, Cody is uh, new to the mega game world um, over in the States and was sort of riding the shut up, sit down, watch the skies train that so many of us did. Um, so thank you all for joining us. Um, today we are really focusing in on um, the Cuban Missile Crisis game that you guys ran as part of the con. Um, but before we get to that, I wanted to talk to you, Mark and Merle, and just hear a little bit about what what is um, the National Strategic Decision Making game. Where did it, where did it come from? How did it start? What's the background there? Okay, it's the National Security Decision Making game. There's a there was a National Security Decision Making Department at the U.S. Naval War College where my brother worked when he designed the thing in 1990. Uh, but it is an attempt to try to bring some type of a a flavor or a methodology from government and military wargaming to the civilian community. Try to show people what military and government wargaming is about to investigate issues, conduct training, that kind of thing. Um, what what it is is in uh, our vernacular would be a, some form of a live action role playing game in which we put the players into key decision making posi positions in 
some some model of a nation state, the U.S., China, Russia. Uh, we have about 23 model contemporary and about five modeled in the Cold War pe period. Uh, the decision make the structure, <clears throat> political structure is all uh, model. You know, we sacrifice detail of playability, of course, but some type of a model of how that nation conducts its decisions, what its major major roles and bodies are, and what. Uh, what type of people have power and influence in it, and then they structure how they uh, how they're going to fight back and forth for a position dominance for inputs on the policy and budgets of the nation. Um, the our stick is it's the world as you know it, and here you you can start now, start trying to fix it, see if you can do better than other people can, and we try to make things generally as realistic as we can within the context of running a game in two hours, four hours, eight hours, six hours, ten hours, whatever how long ever long we have. Uh, and so it's primarily designed for uh, civilians uh, with a modicum of knowledge on how to game, how to uh, do, do do various things, and some interest actually in trying to do this kind of thing, trying to study geopolitics uh, and the interplay of nations and the method in which they, that decisions are made on, on this type of a level. Um, as far as where uh, where we sit in post postmodern uh, mega games, I, I, th I think we're kind of unique in, in most ways. I'm not sure I've seen anything that works exactly like like what we do. Of course, we started trying trying to be do things exactly the way my brother Dan and I did at the Naval War College back in the early 1990s. And we ended up realizing that in the civilian community, we're trying to run a game in eight. We started out every game was eight hours, except for the one we were in that was ten. Led battle fatigue at the end of that, uh, but slowly we've we've been able to streamline the game and get things running uh, where we could have a good good solid game with a lot of interest and things happening within about four hours, um, and that has taken a lot of uh, sacrifice of detail for playability. We put careful decisions into we each one circumspect try to figure out what it is we can really give up without giving them too much of our brand, and there's a, a balancing process to be made in that. Mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, see what's your next? You have you <laughs> well? Uh, one thing I was going to yeah, ask. Uh, was, we, sorry, um, you you mentioned um, the early '90s as the sort of starting point. Um, have you? How, how has the group grown since then? Um, is it you know? How, how, what are we looking at as far as how many games you guys run a year and how regular and the, <laughs> the number of people who come along, all that we, kind of stuff. Yeah, it, on 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 big years we've run up to twenty five games in a year. Uh, modest years. This this year, this year we've had no face to face games for yeah. obvious reasons. Um, but this is also our first year trying things online. We'll we'll talk that in that in a moment. But as far as staffing, it started out for the first five years of the the Dan and Mark show, me and my brother, uh, going from convention to convention. We picked up a lot of. Um, uh, fans of a similar mind who kept coming with back to us and ha would hang it out out with us after the game. Uh, about 1995, we were getting ready for the summer conventions, the summer seasons when we do Origins, Gen Con, and Dragon Con. And that's our big time. Mostly at that point, it was all year getting ready for the summer conventions and then relax and start again for looking into next year. Uh, about 1995, I started suggesting, suggesting to my brother that you know, we could probably convince the convention to give us uh, several hotel rooms and bring in <laughs> and invite some of these uh, serious fans and bring in a staff. And that was the first development of actual encore uh, or a hardcore on-site staff permanent that we could train up to run this cell or that cell 
and uh, get some feel for permanent capabilities, what this, what he can do, what she can do, uh, what they're good at and where they can apply them properly. Uh, and right. it's, been, it's been downhill from there. Um, so, uh, at this point, we've got we've had people comment, we've had people go. We've been doing in that nature for 25 years. We've you know people people have died on us, my brother included. Um, and uh, this is sad when you lose somebody, uh, somebody that's been with you for that long. Uh, but uh, we're um, uh, people have gotten interested and stayed with us. People have tried with us for a few years and then moved on again. Uh, I don't blame them. Uh, but uh, yes, Merle, you got something. <laughs> The other thing to note is right now we have about 40 different people that volunteer to do something connected to NSDM. Uh, of those, there are about 12 that we would call hardcore. They show up at least at one or two conventions every year and help out in a significant way. And of, of the so total, there are about six of us who are absolutely nuts, who spend time on the design and are at every convention and that drive ourselves into the ground and spend way too much money on our hobby. Um, but, you know, that number fluctuates. Uh, right now, we're really working on recruiting people. So if somebody thinks they're interested, contact us through a message on the Facebook page because we explain how we work and try to recruit you and tell you how to work long hours for no money because it's something you really can pick out. <laughs> Good to know. Good to know. You're always open for business, always taking recruits. Um, I was going to ask you, actually, something you said earlier, Mark, about the, I mean, the way that you guys refer to it is the the game. I am you are the national um, strategic decision making game. When you're talking about the different um, scenarios that you run and the different eras and politics, and is it is it sort of a core principle? Like, is there a single sort of set of ideas and uh, rules? I know it's quite mechanic light that you just apply to everything, or how different is each game that you run? Yeah, each uh, each game is going to be different. Our uh, our philosophy is to try to put a structure in front of the players and a generalized view of the world, and then let them run it. Built into the player motivations, each player in each cell, uh, it, they're all asymmetric. They all have their own motivation, their agenda that's put in their hand that says, "This is what you're fighting for. This is what you believe in. This is what we we're. If you're a good role player, we hope you'll take it on and be and be the be this type of role player and fight for this." Uh, and uh, then they will take it from there, and each game will go in a different direction. Potentially, the idea is there, and my philosophy is to try to let them run with it. If they're if they've got a head of steam and they want to move over a certain direction, if it's stupid, we might try to talk them out of it. But if it's not, go ahead and uh, just try to have as much fun with it as you can. But the last thing I want to do is have some you put a, a motivation in a player's hand that says you will accomplish you are to accomplish this, and then make it impossible for them to do that. Um, I, you know, I, I want to make sure that I like it. To, 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 it's an asymmetric game. I like to think that every player's got the same kind of chance to have fun and accomplish what he wants to do in the game, whatever he or she feels that, that you know, gives them satisfaction. Um, and there's been a, been problems in the past years where sometimes somebody gets a position they just can't play, or uh, you know, somebody needs to interact with a lot of other people. They're they're really good at that or not or bad at that. Somebody else needs to do a lot of analytical things and deep thinking they're really good at that or really bad at that um so i, I want to let people you know, give people a chance to do what they want to do and i think one of our advantages is that we are we have a good baseline in terms of our control staff that we can take the game in different directions the technological the military the political the geopolitical the diplomatic uh Merle, you had something there are a couple things one is the core of players in our game represent 
collections of people with similar interests. So it might be a branch of a political party. It might be an administrative organization in a country. It might be that you're the NRA, for example. So they basically have public goals, which we put into the game, and they have private capabilities, which are our analysis of what they can do. And from that standpoint, every player's goal in the game is individual. There's no team win. It's you're trying to convince the rest of the world that your vision for the future is the right thing. And that leads to great fun in the games. Now, we also do a couple other things. We have some nice Chrome and tools. We have some wonderful maps and projection screens that we do it with when we're live. But the other really critical part of it is that the players are driving that play. And our staff has the depth that the difference between us and all the other mega games you'll see is staff experience. Because it's not the hardware, it's not the software, it's the wetware. We have, know how to manage players so that they can get something done. We know how to manage time. And we have somebody on staff that no matter what subject it is, because we've been around way too long, we know something and can do something reasonable in terms of you giving you a result. Mm. Yep. I think that's a really common theme that, um, well, I don't think it's a huge struggle, but we do notice here in Australia because our our scene for this kind of stuff is pretty new. I Talking to you, Merle, I know that there's a few things that happen down here that I'm not aware of, so that's been enlightening. Um, but in the class, in the in the you know the watch the skies mega game world, um, it's all pretty new, and so we don't have a lot of experience. So we're we're, we're fumbling and making it up as we go. Um, but one thing that we just touched on there about the physical components and and running the game with the maps and everything. This year, we we come to this year, and it's been very unique for everyone. Um, and depending on where you're where you're from, it could be the same next year. Um, how has your games? How have your games um, adapted to the new online world? Well, so far, it's just the Discord game that we're running with the Cuban Missile Crisis. Right. Because the the real problem we have in trying to make that translation is our games are big. I mean, mm -hmm. I would listen to the, the Mega Game Assemblies podcast at Gen Con, and people there were saying their biggest game was 85 people. We've had 127 in a game. Mm -hmm. And we routinely run 80 at, on at least one game at every con, or 60. Now, we can run smaller ones, and historically at some of the cons we have, but our normal games are 60 to 80 people. Yeah. So the problem is communication with all those folks, and everybody has independent ability to communicate with everybody else in the game because generally unless it's a vintage cold war game it, you can pick up a cell phone and talk to anybody you want in the world so that uh creates some very unique problems online because how do you pick the person that you want in the role and position that you want and convince them to come to a private space to talk to you and that we haven't overcome yet right right yeah, we we discuss we discuss for example during the during the course of the game we'll talk further about our Cuban Missile Crisis game we ran today, but it's built into the Cuban Missile Crisis Moscow cell that uh, Khrushchev's position is not untenable, and that some collection of other Presidium members can get together and decide to oust him, and that has happened in some of our on-site games. But we this is the, the second time that just today we tried to run the Moscow cell online, and it. There are certain challenges to that. Uh, you, you can't, for example, just grab a couple of the people who might have the power to help you oust Khrushchev and go find a corner of the room or some other room where uh, where they where people won't notice that you've actually disappeared now, mm -hmm. especially in a game yeah, where a people are, are built in. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
technical skill in players is a critical shortcoming because all our games are people walk in. And even here, it's, you know, you don't know who's signing up. So everybody's at a different level with their skills in the electronic tools. And the really proficient people now have an advantage. And they're people that may never come because you're in that electronic tool. Yep. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, well, before we delve into the game that you guys played today, my last question about that online space is, given how it went today, do you think that you're going to continue pursuing trying to make that translation? I think the answer is uh, sort of, kind of, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, uh, I think the realization some of us came to today, and we haven't had our full AAR after action report, is that uh, trying to translate a in-person game to online has some unique problems that may mean that you can't do it the same way. Um, also because our games don't have identical positions. Most mega games, you'll have a, a country and there's a foreign minister or there's a science person or there's a military person and the structure's the same across all the different countries. Well, we don't have that. Every position's custom. Every position's based on a model of the real world country. And real world countries do weird things, have like elections and get rid of leaders. And so updating is an issue too. But the, the core issue with that is there's lots more choice. And with that level of choice is a problem. And the other difficulty, which is critical, is communication. Voice channels with more than about seven people break down fast and wind up making it impossible for a group to make a decision. And we discovered that, that definitely more, happened for us. <laughs> we discovered that more and more. So unless you simplify and highly structure your game, you're not going to be able to run a game online. And that means there are some games you won't be able to run online at all. Right. Yeah, I think that's a I think that's a common realization a lot of people are having in their um starting to design for the online space. And I think that's the important key part. Um, yeah, okay. Well, thanks for that. Um, I'm really interested to learn more about you guys, but for now we'll park and move on to the Cuban Missile Crisis. So I might hand over to you, Jack, who who you were there, you were on the ground, um, you witnessed the, the chaos and the confusion. Um, let's hear about it. Yeah, um, so I, when, I, when I came into it, I wasn't totally sure what to expect because it was my first one of these style of um, games that I'd ever played. Um, but I was really impressed by it. I had a fantastic time and I was amazed that considering that in the end it was ultimately just us sitting around talking on Discord um, for most of the time, the tension and the, the paranoia and feeling of dread was really there for the entire time. It was incredibly fast-paced and tense. And I think... Um, uh, so I'll talk a bit about... I was... Um, uh, let me try to pronounce that, Leonid Brezhnev of Secretary of the Central Committee um, for the Soviets. Thank you. <laughs> and um, uh, we, I'll talk a bit about the Soviets specifically, um, but one of the things that I was really found awesome is the way the communication restrictions worked with Discord. Um, I think there were some hiccups there, but... Um, uh, basically, because of the delay in communications, um, it meant that, you know, whenever we were sending a message out to people, there would be a delay there and things might get scrambled and communications might um, uh, go awry. And that really keyed into this key, like, paranoia that, like, 
you know, there could be a missile heading towards us right now and we won't know until it's already here, right? Like that we, it, it made us really feel like, at least me really feel like, um, like events were kind of accelerating out of our control and we were a very slow machine trying to respond to this crisis that was like a runaway train that kept like, um, and I think part of that is that our Soviet team um, w became quickly and completely mired in bureaucracy um, and uh, really struggled to do anything at all. Um, we, 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 so basically we made this large, it was like a 12 person discord group or something with all of the Soviets. And I think perhaps part of this is discord, part of this is our decisions. But we were playing as if every single decision needed to be approved and voted on by that discord, like every single bit of communication, every single thing that was going to go out. So we would be just talking about just a completely irrelevant things and how we're going to talk about this thing and the message we're going to send. And then another thing would happen and we'd get completely distracted from that and move on to the next thing. Um, uh, yeah, so we we were responding extremely slowly, and I think um, I, I'll, I'll toss it over to Cody after this to talk about the American experience more. But we felt like the Cubans and Americans seemed to be able to get things done a lot more quickly than we were. So it was really like um, it, it felt like just the situation in Cuba. Oh no, <laughs> okay. But it just felt like the situation in Cuba and America, like, wow, they're really on top of it, those those Americans. But like, it felt like things were going out of control while we were slowly trying to wrangle this committee um, in, into doing anything. Um, uh, Cody, I'll, I'll, I'll kick it over to you. How did you feel about things from the American um, side of the table? And uh, uh, tell people about your role as well. Hi, name's Cody. I was uh, the president, JFK. Uh, during the mega game or the SDM mega game for Cuban Missile Crisis, and um, really, it wasn't. I don't. We got along a lot better. It sounds like when it comes to the whole voting situation of getting things done. But I really relied on my team heavily to do that. Um, this type of game and the knowledge required for the military sim and the history sim went way above my head. So I'd be like, okay, whose job is that? And there would be like two or three people in the room who kind of knew everything about the game. Clearly, they were very professional and very, you know active in this community so like oh you need to talk to this person do this do this do this and i'd be like cool do it everyone's like awesome so we were just kind of i was relying heavily on my staff to essentially direct us of what we need to do and i was just trying to be this blockade to stop any crazy weird ideas like let's go to defcon 2 and just nuke them and it's like how about no <laughs> <laughs> um so that was it was interesting that way because you know there'd be people I was talking to and I'd be like, so what do you do? It's like, I'm your secretary of this. I'm like, but what does that mean to me? <laughs> you know, what does that role imply and what can, you know? So um, I really do. I really believe it was um, my staff being so knowledgeable and me just being kind of, you know, a lot more chill and being like, Oh, sounds like a great idea. Go ahead and do it. Why not? Instead of trying to micromanage. So our, our success was the success, success of the team. Definitely not mine alone. Yeah, that makes sense. That sounds awesome. I think um, the way we, oh, sorry, I'll, I'll kick over to you, Mel, in a sec, but the way we tended to do things is we would all agree to do a thing, and that, but none of us knew whose job it actually was, so we would just be like, yeah, we voted on it, great, and then no one would do it. 
<laughs> so I think well, it's, there's, a, there's a fundamental difference in um, so in some of the positions. I, I can break positions down sometimes in NSDM games to whether or not they're they're a seminar advocate, meaning they're the head person of a comb with a whole lot of people below them, and they're talking as part of a committee, or whether they're a true role player who has individual authority to do certain things. Uh, in the Soviet cell, there aren't a whole lot of people that can do that. You have the Minister of Defense, who could presumably just give an order, although he might get uh, uh, might get his, his wrist slapped for it if the Politburo doesn't like that order. Whereas in the U.S. cell, there is an entire JCS, Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, who can start ordering plane ships and tanks around. Uh, there's a minister. There's a uh, minister. There's a, a defense minute, a defense uh, secretary. There's a secretary of state who can start communicating. And similar things, even more so in Cuba. There are a lot of people who can jump on military orders or some other text channel and give an order for somebody to do something. And that's often why you find the Soviet cell in that is a lot more stagnant, a lot more bureaucratized, which is what you've seen. And we actually designed it in that way because that's that's kind of the way they did things. And it was it it was sluggish and it did almost bring the world to the brink of disaster during the Cuban Missile Crisis. They realized they needed a more a more streamlined, more policy driven. Um, organization that I'm not sure they ever really implemented because there's too much bureaucratic uh, friction. Uh, so I think that that might have explained it. Go ahead. The other thing to understand is this game was designed with three basic goals. One was to uh, establish a three-cell game where you had the Cubans, the Soviets, and the Americans, and all of those were the executive policy organizations that were making decisions during the crisis. So it was to give you background on the people and the capabilities that they had in that situation. The second thing that was part of the a critical part of the of the structure was communication, because in that era there were no cell phones. There was one telecommunication satellite that went up in 1962. So we're talking about transatlantic cables, ionic sphere bouncing of radio waves, and TV if you want to do a public announcement. So. The cycle time for messages between Russia and the United States was almost a day because it would take, there was a seven hour difference between the time zones, but more importantly, it would take you about 12 hours to write your message, hand it to a courier, send it to somebody to encrypt it, send it to somebody who actually sent it across the cable. Then it got to your ambassador someplace and it had to be decrypted and then they had to look at it and decide and then translate that message into the local language and send it by courier to the government body. So that was the second thing that came out of it. But the third part was to have the players understand the dynamics in what we think of as homogeneous groups because it's several generations behind most of the people that play now. Some of us were you know, really young and some of us had been around for a few years, but nobody really was cognizant and aware and like 20 years old in 1962 that's still around that's playing games. So it was all about giving them that visceral feeling of how things work and how the world is gray. There's no set bunch of answers. And where they thought leaders were in lockstep, it's OMG, just like our convention. If nothing else, in a Cold War game, I, as Milcon, I enjoy taking some, you know, late teens or twenty-year-old and showing them the polar map, and how just how close the U.S. and the Soviet Union are, and how many nuclear weapons they had pointed at each other. Um, until today's generation doesn't know how 
uh, how uh, almost threat-free by comparison their environment is today, because they haven't, they didn't, uh, they didn't grow up as I did. I, I, I have one chart. I have uh, several, several lectures I can give on the Cuban Missile Crisis that shows what a one megaton bomb will do in Midtown Manhattan, uh, and uh, in terms of where it, where it'll take out the steel reinforced concrete, where it'll take out the concrete structures, where it'll start to bare wood, where to destroy wooden structures, where your denim dunes will will catch fire if you're in line of sight. And just to show people I'm not a heartless bastard, I show exactly on the chart where I was at that moment and what would have happened to me. <laughs> I remember it. It was in first grade. That's one of the things that's interesting is the, the history and the, the research sneak up on players. And at the end of the game, when we do the debrief, we talk about what we inserted that was artificial and what was real. And they all go, oh, my. <laughs> <laughs> do you find? Um, do you find the people who are playing these games generally have a pretty high level of historic, like historic knowledge, or are you usually are you often teaching them, like like you were just saying, where they realize how much happened? We we actually found a lot more in the uh, a lot more in the nineties. A lot more people came in armed with the information that they needed to understand. Nowadays, we do find um, we're spending a lot more of our time trying to teach. That's okay too. We decide that. You know, we, we consider ourselves a nonprofit educational organization and teaching people things is part of what the role is going to be. Uh, but we have to start from a, an earlier baseline. Uh, and one of the things, we, if we go to Origins, the war game convention, we find usually a higher class of people, not class, I shouldn't say class, but a, a better educated and a better prepared set of people versus when we go to Dragon Con, uh, who people want more science fiction-y themes, more things that are wacky. Uh, we can go either way, and we'll. We I don't want to disparage either group. They uh, they just have different challenges, and uh, and cause us to try to look into different directions if we want to put on an entertainment. The, the other thing is the age cohort of people that are playing has changed dramatically. Uh, in the '90s, we had a fair percentage of the players were over 35, and a number of them were vets, so they had more world knowledge just based on their own personal experience. When you moved into the 2000s, you had fewer and fewer historical gamers uh, and more and more role players, but they were like D&D role players. And now, particularly at Dragon Con and Gen Con, we get cosplayers and LARPers uh, have found the appeal of the visceral kind of game that we run. And majority of the people playing now are under 25. And they're all about the rowdy and all about the role play, and they know <laughs> none of the history. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can attest to that for sure. People would be like, oh, this place is getting attacked. I'm like, where's that at? I'm like, oh, it's over here. Like, where's that? Like, where's here? You know, where's this location? <laughs> you know, we're all geeks that are in this conversation, but recognize how many people do you know don't open the paper mm. and don't get their, don't watch TV for the news and don't look at multiple sources. And that's the kind of thing we deal with. You'll have people, I've had people come to the game and guys that are starting college that think New Jersey is next to Israel. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, on that, the, there, there's definitely a... Um, Jack was, was explaining to me some of the documentation that he got um, before the game, and there was definitely some very clear um, connections there to education. Um, how uh, have you have you guys sort of branched? Have you branched into that formal education area, and how does that how does that like do? You, or is it just a byproduct? Have you specifically gone and tried to educate? 
we've always tried to include it because the games are an excuse to do research and we're geeky like that. But the other part of it is an integral part of what NSDM has done is look at the educational side of it. And we've done stuff at academic events, both professionally, because we've done, done events at the National Defense University and had the instructors at our mercy, which was wonderful because we taught them gamer tricks that they didn't know. Uh, we've done events at Ball State in Indiana. We've done Ashland University in Ohio. We recently did Campbellsville University in Kentucky. Um, we don't get to do as many of those as we like because those are more serious. But the main reason is we're not like Henry Kissinger or, or uh, some celebrity. They don't have a big speaker budget in history and poli-sci programs for things like us. So we get to some of them and we love them to death, but um, most of where we play our games are at conventions. We also have done, uh, we also have, we've done university games, also lower level, high school level games. We did a series for the Sea Cadets in uh, Newport, Rhode Island. Uh, and these are a bunch of you know, kids, you know, teenagers show up and, uh, on, on a weekend for what amounts to a Navy reserve drill. And uh, it's at that point that the education is trying to teach them the communications and negotiation skills. You know, we make sure each cell had a, an election for you know, in the, the Chinese cell general secretary in the U.S. or the president of the United States and running um, these you know, teenagers to that type of process where they have to state their policy positions and convince people to vote for them. That's yeah, that's uh, int that's useful enough on that level. Whereas the unit and uh, the Campbellsville games that we put on last fall, we had a game for the on the high school level, and um, if we were told one of the high school teachers was coming in uh, with junior was kind of skeptical, but as soon as she saw what the kids were doing, she just walked around with this big smile on her face. We got them to engage on a level that uh, you know reading a dozen books wouldn't have done. Uh, and then we had did the high school and the college level, and we we shifted games and shifted tracks and tried to make it more academic. Um, and uh, it, you you decide what your audience is and what what best they can get out of it. What do they want to get out of it, and uh, where you have to start in terms of how deeply you have to explain things and how much you have to. Uh, mm. you know, and we generally get two or three schools of one kind or another that approach us every year and say, "This sounds really cool. We'd like to do it." And then when you say, "Well," You know, to do a good job for you, we need eight people to run it. And you start saying, we don't ask for anything except expenses. They sort of go, oh, that's $5,000. Maybe we can't do that. <laughs> um, and then, uh, but that doesn't mean that we're not open to it. For example, we've been approached by um, a university in the, the Southeast to run a summer camp program on poli-sci, political science, next year. And we're, we're in discussions about that. And I'm kind of hopeful that that'll occur. Awesome. Yeah, that aspect of um, evoking the, the feel and the atmosphere of what was going on at the time was something I definitely really felt. Um, there was one big moment for the Soviets where we got news that a missile was headed uh, directly for us, um, <laughs> like straight happening, and it uh, kept live updating that like stuff was happening, and it was just like this heart attack moment. And it turned out to be a um, radar malfunction and nothing was actually happening at all, but it really um, absolutely gave us all a heart attack. That, that was the intent. That was the intent. We have two variants of that. It's based on something that actually did happen during the Cuban Missile oh, Crisis. Wow. And there was a space launch out of Vandenberg Air Force Base planned, nothing to do with the crisis. They had just shifted some radars that were looking over the Arctic 
thinking you know, for uh, against you know they were you know, defense radars to detect a Soviet missile launch. They had just shifted themselves to detect a possible ballistic missile launch from Cuba, but they misaligned them. Instead of looking south, they're actually looking west, and they picked up the Vandenberg space launch. And for a few moments, it looked to them like there were there was a ballistic missile launch out of Cuba. So uh, we have two variants of that. I, I ran the one of the Soviet variant because it didn't look like a lot of things were happening to you compared to what was happening to Cuba and the U.S. And that's why we why we went that with that one. But I have to make sure I got uh, what you, I do in Discord is I. I copy the first inject, I paste it in before I press enter, I copy the second inject, so I'm ready to paste that in in a few moments. I'm, I'm listening to your cell, so you know, on site we would do the same thing, I'm ready to shoot the second one just about the time when the players are about to launch their missiles. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but it's always a lot of fun, it, it, take, it takes you know, 20, 30 seconds to run it, so it's, it's a great, it's, you know, I, I enjoy it more than you probably. Well, even <laughs> historical and period pieces, the other thing to understand, because we've researched these things or we studied them in school so extensively, we know a lot of the what ifs. And to make it more real for the players, we tell them up front, this isn't history. You know, when we play a full Cold War game at a convention, one of those we have often done is blow up John Glenn on the pad when he tries to take off in the 60s. He was my senator, a really nice guy, but we killed him because it was to <laughs> emphasize that this is not history. This is mm. the, the game about the possible and the plausible. Mm. And when we reach the Cold War, another aspect of it is, in 1960, everybody thought the Soviets were winning. They had a huge industrial base that basically was built in 15 years. They went from a dirt poor, poor country to a big industrial country. They were ahead in space. They were ahead in science. And every third world country that was gaining its independence was using the Soviet model to manage their economy. So... People really thought they could win. It's only in hindsight that we see how bad they were. Awesome. And talking about that alternate, um, that uh, his alternate history and what may have been, I just want to direct to Cody a bit and talk about the attempted assassination of Kennedy by a Cuban agent. Um, how, how did that go? Uh, tell us how that happened in, in your team, Cody, and how that went down. So it was a fun time because um, essentially Control said, hey, are you cool if we do something to you? And I'm just like, yeah, sure, whatever you need to. Um, and we were on a, I was on like- You didn't a, expect we're going to shoot you twice in the chest. That's right. Um, I was getting a lot of pressure to do like a political campaign because I had somebody on my team who was constantly being like, hey, your votes are down, by the way. Like, you need to go do something about this. And so when I went off to go do a speech, um, I, I, was, I was shot. So- I got held up with control for a bit, and we had a nice long talk. Um, and there was a, a decision we made about me potentially dying and being recast as another member of the government, or you know, recovering mm -hmm. after a significant period of time, you know, and then coming back to like whatever chaos I left over. Um, we offered him a chance to get a personality transplant and become LBJ. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason why I didn't take, the reason why I didn't take it is because. You know, in my standpoint, I didn't know what the difference was. So I'm like, well, I've kind of read this brief, and I've had time to read it and talk to people. So I think I'd, I'd feel more comfortable staying with it, since at least I can come in and be like, yes, it's me still. Ta-da! <laughs> I've lived. Um, <laughs> it, was, it was interesting, because it sounded like the Cuban came from Moscow through Canada. That's the information that we got. I'm not sure if that's true or not. And anywhere from Moscow, you fly to Helsinki first, but Helsinki to Toronto, and then he rented a car. 
<laughs> and then ended, ended up ended up fo- trying to follow JFK. Of course, JFK. He's expecting JFK to be in Washington D.C. Uh, so it, it took it took him better part of a night to to drive all the way to Chicago. Mm. <laughs> so normally, we've, we've done that before. Normally, we we usually just wound JFK. Sometimes we don't do it at all. Uh, if we're going to actually uh, off JFK, the Johnson Lyndon Johnson player is uh, in the card deck. Uh, we don't. We only hand him out if we're going to. In fact, usually I don't. I shouldn't give away the state secret here. We only usually only hand him out if we're going to kill JFK because he doesn't have much of a position if Kennedy's in play. Uh, he was in, in, in historically he was pretty much much marginalized in the Kennedy administration, um, and uh, he was he was on the ticket. In fact, to, to deliver try to try to deliver Texas in the election. Um, he was a mover and shaker in the Senate, and he carried a lot of the South with him. But in fact. The Kennedys didn't really didn't really want to welcome him into the administration. But uh, what we usually do as a game mechanic, we're going to go into off JFK and put LBG on charge, which will change the manner in which the entire U.S. cell acts and reacts to things. Uh, makes things the 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 Soviets should get a whole lot more nervous with JFK in charge than with LBG in charge than JFK, if for no other reason he's going to be more reactionary and less open to negotiation compromise. But um, what we would do is we would put a ringer in as JFK, one of our own that people might not recognize, that won't, ma- won't mind leaving the game and coming to help us on the control staff side of things, and uh, rather than have somebody try to do a personality transplant. Or sometimes one of our better role players that we've recognized has come in for a while, saying we, we, we could find him, this is what we're going to do. And he said, oh, sure, I'll, I'll just read up on both and I'll, I'll change my accent. <laughs> it was um, it's funny trying to, trying to put on a thick Massachusetts accent and then shifting the deep south all of a sudden. Yeah, it was it was a lot of fun to find out that half my staff was, was either related to me or my best friend. Like I'm sitting there like I'm your brother. I'm like you're my brother. Oh, cool. No, no wonder. No wonder everyone's so Yep. I have a quick question from chat for you, Cody, as well. Um, this is something I'm interested in the answer in as well, because we got a lot of info from Cuba that um, you guys were bombing all this stuff and and, and attacking us. Um, and then when it came time for a peace talk, you were like, oh, our guns are unloaded. Why, why all this aggression? Um, so was the U.S. involved at all in the bombing of the Cuban copper mine or the Soviet ship exploding is the question. So from uh, my yes, the, yes, absolutely. Those were those were manga. I'm sorry. Did you want to answer? Oh no, I was just going to say from my standpoint as president, the answer is no because <laughs> I never gave that or, I never gave that order. However, there may no, have been other people no, but your that order. Did. Ah, no, but your brother, my did. brother. Curse <laughs> <No. laughs> you, brother. The USL, the USL was not. The USL was not specifically conducting event by event, but the the mongoose teams, as they were, that were run by uh, on a high level by Bobby Kennedy, uh, were inserted and tra- you know, were trained trained and trained by the U.S. and inserted in for the purpose of doing that. In effect, they weren't anywhere near as effective as we made them in today's game. Uh, but with a, a Cuban cell in play, uh, we wanted to keep ramping up the the pressure on them having things happen. We want to make the U.S. feel a little bit like, hey, we're accomplishing something, while at the same time maybe making some decisions. Should we be pulling the plug on these guys or trying to trying to turn the, the, the pressure down just so we could de-escalate things? But as a, I, I, I'm not sure that decision was ever, that it was ever discussed on the U.S. level. The other thing that happens a lot in the games is 
uh, as staff, we make people start to realize the danger of having everybody on high alert closely packed together. I mean, we've seen that in the modern era with like the P3 uh, intercept out in the Pacific a number of years ago where they accidentally ran into one another in, in midair. Uh, in this period, it's much more pronounced because the level of communication and the level of sophistication in avoiding collisions in the air and on sea is a lot more rudimentary compared to what we have now. Yeah. Um, I, I was going to ask um, Jack, but also Cody, just quickly, um, hearing about the experiences, it actually, like, in my mind, when I started talking to you, Merle, uh, on Facebook, I started thinking this is a whole new, like, this is totally different. And, I, and, I, and it sounds like it is in a lot of ways to what we do. Um, but hearing these stories, it also sounds like an after after mega game chat where there's a lot of wacky stuff and mis misinformation that kind of thing. So, to you guys playing, how did this differ from a tradition like you know, um, sorry, Cody, you were saying you started with Watch the Skies, for example. How did this experience feel different other than the fact it was online? So the major difference was the idea of knowledge regarding you know real world military and real world history. Because people were, you know, instead of talking like the aliens or that team over there, you know, the Russian team, there were mm. so many subset of teams and names, locations, as well as just like objects. Like, hey, there's this, and I'll, I'm going to screw this up and they're going to yell at me. There's this something, be something, something plain here, you know, coming towards you. And people in the chat are like, oh, that's bad. I'm like, but why is that bad? What does that plane do? Where are its capabilities? You know, is that is that a bomber? Is that a, is that a recon? Does it have people on it? Are they coming to nuke us? Hmm. You know, and it show how big's the nuke, stuff like that. So that is the ma the major difference is that you know understanding the the time period and the real world knowledge is a lot different when you go into like a, most mega games where it's like, hey, we're in space, and here's like the five things that you need to know. What one of the other aspects of this whole thing, having looked at mega games and participated in some mega games, as you guys experience it with the folks that come to OMG, it's about a topic that grabs your attention, normally fictional or sci-fi, everything mm -hmm. from most British coup to Den of Wolves, which is sort of a Battlestar Galactica ripoff, mm -hmm. to uh, you know, watch the skies. So it has a, a vivid um, storyline and narrative that gets people excited about the topic. Mm -hmm. And then the mechanics are set up in such a way that the players have a handful of decisions and it's the interaction between the players and negotiation that drives the storyline. But there are only so many bridge points and decision points. In our games, we try to model on something that's real or plausible, and it's much more unique and detailed. And because we have the background knowledge, we can freestyle what the result is in a way you can't. Hmm. Most of the games, it's I put four resources in, I got an army, and then I went and did something with it. Or I made a deal, we're buddies, and we're going to get better resourcing for it. And very simple mechanics. In ours, you can say, I'm going to build an interstate highway system. Now, all of a sudden, you can move troops across the country faster. Or you can build an aircraft carrier that was never built of a whole new type. Or you can decide a super tank. Or you can say, well, we're going to abandon Cuba because it's not worth it. Mm. You know, All of those things are open because of our free-form style of play there are many fewer barriers to you doing things for a personal idea or storyline yeah yep and um when you were speaking earlier about the number of 
regulars you've got, how how the crowd has grown a lot and you have a lot of walk-ins, but you've got a few core regular people. How did the diversity go in this game, this online one? How many new faces were there, kind of like Cody, who hasn't experienced your games, and how many regulars were there? Okay, so we've done three online games this year. Uh, the two we did at Dragon Con, we had about 25% were regulars. Hmm. Um, and here we had two or three, some of which came in from Dragon Con. When we do a physical con, we'll get 20 to 40% in a particular game of regulars and realize some of our regulars have played 50 games with us. <laughs> yeah. Um, there, there's some hardcore people, like there's one guy up until a few years ago, which we think he got sick or died, but he was like in every game. Uh, there are some people that have played 75 games. Right, right. Okay. You know, because they come back and we do six at a convention and they come to two conventions a year and they've done it for, you know, five or, or seven years. And almost all of our current staff are people that were players. There's only a couple who weren't. So you get promoted or demoted depending on how you look at it. Right. <laughs> so with all that previous experience, um, what was there anything in this game and in running it that really caught you off guard or surprised you in, in how it went? The biggest thing that struck me would, was yeah, that we had some people really ran to roll. It's it's like when the Cubans turned to the Soviet commander, the lead Soviet commander in Cuba, and said, "What are your orders from Moscow about rules of engagement?" He says, "That's a state secret." <laughs> uh, yeah, some of the. Um uh players the the lower level players in cuba uh i thought uh, did some interesting game uh interesting low level gameplay trying to track down guerrilla factions rebel factions things like that on the level that we don't normally see on site and i was uh they, they kept me busy and i suppose that's a good thing and still keeps me from doing other things uh and that that, uh, that was that was kind of uh, I, I enjoyed that that was good running mm -hmm. Scary part is that could have just been a denial of service attack on our military controller. <laughs> <laughs> All part of the plan. <laughs> We're still growing into the equipment. We have our own communication problems, just trying to learn. I mean, each each time we come in, have a new game, we've we've tweaked down a little bit. And and uh, Van Van was doing most of our secondary injects from the rest of the world and the news releases and he I could tell he was getting frustrated he's uh, he's he's a he's a gamer going way back and uh, he's a real uh, real uh, uh, real sport there but uh, he was he was again struggling with it just it sounds like seems like we change every, change it every game and yeah we are a little bit changing every game but hopefully we'll stabilize on something and find a find you know I think we're close to having here that works least for limited purposes here with a very structured game with a set of injects and very, uh, but uh, how we we're going to branch off from here into a more free form game uh where everybody can talk to everybody else that's uh, that's going to be much more challenging mm -hmm. the other thing that i think is is really kind of amusing about the game we we went through is uh, we had less traffic where we were teasing and having fun with the players some games our news feed becomes a comedy track so, like, uh, in one of our Dragon Con games, the, uh, uh, there was a nuclear attack at sea. So after the nuclear attack at sea, there were all these dead fish in the water, and the Cuban fishing fleet came out to collect them because uh -huh. these are poor people who have no food. 
Uh, in our regular games, we've done a few things that are more extreme, and I love to tell this story because we had a, Japan was a, a country we were playing in the regular game, and in the middle of the game, we had a ship come into port with a bunch of sailors who went to the bar, and all they did was start drinking. It had these huge raking marks down the side of the ship, and we had had you know a isotopic you know isotopes released in the Pacific at one point, and some of the veteran players are going, "No, they didn't." No, because <laughs> these guys are talking about this huge yeah, monster. Uh, the ja Japanese, the ja some Japanese came out in anti-contamination suits and 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 uh, you know uh, fenced off the ship and they're doing surveys, all visible. Well, our our ground truth. Go ahead. You want to go? The ground truth was it was a promo for a new Godzilla movie. <laughs> oh, so we have fun really with it. <laughs> It's good to know that these crazy little side plots uh, still bleed out of these these more serious historic games. Um, I was actually just going to ask, um, what would you? Because I I I'm, I've really come into this looking at the this is a very different thing to what I'm used to, and I'm starting to see that maybe it's not as as different as I thought. But this the, there are um, you know de levels of of technical knowledge and detail that are different. What would you say to people who are, you know, um, like Cody, for example, who've just played a Watch the Skies or one or two of these, these are the more gamey, more more board gamey, I think I'd say, um, games, who are sort of intimidated or not so sure about joining in these um, events that you guys run? What would you, how do you pitch it to people like that? One of the keys is we tell them we're your staff and we'll give you the kind of answers your staff would give you. We don't expect you to understand a nuclear exchange. We don't expect you to understand what it takes to move the first Marine division or what a political demarche is, but we've got a guy that's retired from state department that can explain it really well to you. <laughs> so we send it to him. Right. Um, the, the other thing is because of that, we also have some fun with it because if you're outer Botswana, you're not going to get the quality of information if the United States, when you ask how many missiles does the Soviet union have, but it, the thing is you shouldn't be daunted by it because it's about the role play. It's about negotiating with other players to get what you want. That's the core of the game. All the other stuff, you're going to absorb strange facts by osmosis because we tend to be more real world based. We've done yeah. all the hard stuff. You get to do the easy stuff and we get entertained by what you do. Absolutely. Yeah. And I was surprised. Um, I am not an expert in um, the history of the Cuban Missile Crisis at all, but um, yeah, I, I found it wasn't really necessary. It is absolutely possible to learn as you go and enjoy the game um, and uh, not need to have uh, read a whole a huge amount of um, books before the game. It, it is definitely possible to enjoy it without that historical knowledge. Um, I'll just um, I'll, I'll just uh, go through some of the stuff we've had brought up in chat here. First of all, from... Um, we have a story from the game. We had an entire subplot of low-level Cubans planning to somehow wrest control of the nukes and high-level equipment from the Soviets. Uh, never really proved 100% feasible. And then, of course, we entered into these talks. <laughs> At the same time, I think that we were the U.S. was planning on invading Cuba because Cuba just shot down one of our um, uh, U-2 planes, I think it was, or one of our um, survey planes. Yeah. And it was like that's all we needed. We were we were you know we either we had peace conversations or they shot at us once. And if they did, it was going to be all over for probably everyone. 
Because at that point, uh, I had a lot of people. On staff. Ordered, that's right. I don't. Yeah, if, if I had a lot of people on my staff who were ready and willing to absolutely go, you just wipe them off the face of the planet. And like that's going to end us all. Like it, we do that, then Russia attacks us. We attack Russia, and then half the world catches on fire, right? And so it was, but it, it just—I I was hoping they didn't do it, and they did. And I remember Chris, who was I think in the Cuban team or the Russian team, heard about it. Said, "No, no, if we shoot them down, they will attack us. Like that's all they need. They need one excuse, and they're in." So uh, it definitely was. It was definitely was at that point. The other point that comes out with the game if people are paying close attention, is even with what we think of as the norm from history, the United States in many ways acted as a rogue state during the Cuban Missile Crisis. We triggered a blockade historically, which is an act of war. Uh, I just heard the U.S. president complaining about they shot down our planes that were spying on them over their own territory at low level, and therefore... (laughs) it was grounds for war. If the Cubans or the Soviets had flown people over Miami the same way, you'd all be equally outraged, but for all the right reasons. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. But we were so outraged when, um, Cody, when you were giving your big speech um, at the end in the peace talks and talking about how peaceful the US was and this unwarranted aggression. And meanwhile, we literally, just as you were speaking, got news of a, a nuclear explosion test in Hawaii. And and I think that's the fun of the game is that I didn't know, like, that was not knowledge I had in my, you know, pocket, right? I didn't know that we were bombing your guys' minds or, you know, testing off nuclears or having insurgents. It was either, I don't want to say rogue agents, because no one was going purely rogue on our side, but, you know, there's things happening where people are like, hey, I'm going to do a thing. I'm like, yeah, sure, that sounds great. And like, all right, and off they went. So, you know, from my standpoint as the president, we're like, we've done nothing wrong. So we I can see why people players, are like, oh. We often tell players, government is a blunt instrument. Because <laughs> lots of things get started, and you, you once it's started, whether it's small or large, it can exceed your ability to control. And that's true in the real world today, as well as it was, you know, years ago. Because I think yeah. at one point, uh, I think Russia went to, was it like um, level two? And we were told they went uh, to like level, level two three. readiness. Ah, there must have been miscommunication that because we kept getting told they're going to level two, and that's why I was saying like, why are you guys trying to like end the world? Because we're just sitting here at level three or whatever level we're at. Because th- we almost went to level two, which would have of course escalated to incredible yeah. shenanigans. We would have been forced to also go to level two. Uh, the miscommunication is killer, absolutely. Which would have been hilarious. It's controlled like they're going to level two. Like we know they're at level two. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. All right, awesome. Um, Well, I think uh, we'll look at wrapping it up there then. Um, uh, Thanks so much, everyone, for your awesome insights and expertise in this chat. Um, I think I'll just uh, go around the table and just get um, your info and where people can find you if they're looking for more info um, about your games, Uh, starting with you, Mark. Uh, I'll, I'll defer to Merle and what the plan is. I'm trying to, at this point, live one day at a time. <laughs> My planning horizon usually ends on Tuesday. There, there are two things going on. One is, if you come to our seminar tomorrow morning, we have customized it to talk to the mega game world, and it talks a lot, lot more about how we run games and why we run games and how the mechanics work. Because we come from the military and historical analysis type tradition, 
and we hang out with guys who talk about war games as the cycle of research, okay, where you all are doing it primarily for fun, but lots of the mechanics and all the other things are the same. So if you come to that seminar tomorrow at 11.30 and it runs to 1.30, you'll see lots of slides and have us talk about the real problems of dealing with convention management and other stuff. Uh, the other thing is, if you want to communicate with us directly, the best way is to poke us with a message on our Facebook page, which is NSDM, the National Security Decision-Making Game. And we also have been recording all of our presentations this year on YouTube. So we have a bright, new, shiny YouTube channel, which you can get to by searching for NSDMG, and it'll come right up. We've got about 15, 16 things, and you can see all the wackiness we get involved in. Yeah. Our, our Facebook page especially might be intriguing because we will be posting articles and various uh, notifications and things of uh, uh, contemporary world affairs. Uh, anyone who is, uh, has a motivation to come to our game, try to experience some of this, might also be interested in the, uh, what we've, called, we've gone through and called and put on that site hmm. uh, from uh, a, a summary of uh, various things from a number of sources. We, we try to stay apolitical, but basically we put up stuff from all the kinds of stuff we're interested in watching ourselves. Mm. So we don't endorse articles, but it's mo mainly a news feed with scheduled events so you know what we're doing. Yeah. And, and um, with noting that you've got that YouTube channel, will your um, seminar from tomorrow be um, published afterwards? Uh, we're going to stream it through Facebook and YouTube live, mm -hmm. and we'll be watching Discord for questions if people can't we can't get to it directly. We're not going to broadcast it primarily through Discord, but we're going to try to see if somebody will project it and how well that works. Mm -hmm. But that will allow us to record and share. Excellent. Awesome. And um, um, Cody, I, I'm not sure if you're really into the design and facilitation world, but um, I was going to ask you, will you be coming back to um, one of the NSDM games? I, I might. I, I might do that. Um, I'm still. I know. I'm on the fence. Uh, just because of the you know the events that happened. All good, mind you. It's just it's yeah. so different from Watch Skies, Den of Wolves, Aegon's Conquest. You know, yeah. list you know list them all off. But um, depending on the crew that I'm with, I think I'll definitely mm -hmm. enjoy it. And maybe a lower level you know position might be better. I do like playing high positions, but you know it just I just felt so fish out of water for good and bad reason. <laughs> Yeah, I'd like great. to also quickly, shamelessly plug uh, mm. the Megan Coalition. Yeah, uh, they're an excellent group of people who I met like last year, um, and every member and every group and person I've met there have been just excellent at trying to foster the community. And say, hey, welcome, join, play. Here's how to run it. You know, hey, you need help making one? Here, you know, we've got people that are you know good at doing this and this and this and programming web design. Here's their ask. You know, here's their work for free. So it's been. Um, it's been a, a good time. So if anyone's interested in mega games or anything of that sort, Mega Game Coalition is absolutely the place to go. Awesome. Awesome. Um, and you can find Jack and I on Facebook as well. We've just set up a new Facebook um, page for the great game. And we've obviously got Brisbane and Sydney mega games running um, online. Um, awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you all, Mark, Merle, Cody. Thanks for joining us. It's been a really good chat. Um, and unfortunately, I will be asleep during the seminar tomorrow, but I will watch it afterwards. So I'm keen to, keen to <laughs> see it. Absolutely.
As always, thanks so much for listening. Um, you can find us on our Facebook page at the Great Game Podcast. Um, you'll also be able to find us on our new Discord channel, uh, which will be linked on that Facebook page, um, where we might be doing some more live podcasts in future. Um, and you can find me personally at jack at ashtowngames.com. As always, you can find me over at the sydneymakergamers.com and at hello at sydneymakergamers.com. Stay tuned for our next episode next week, um, where we'll be going through another recording from the online mega game con- conference, where we'll be chatting with Becky and Peter regarding the playtest of As Thou Commands, which was a medieval mega game of politics and world building. Really good chat, so uh, we'll see you then.